Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Niner, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. I invite you to get your Bibles out to Matthew chapter 5. We are continuing our march through the Sermon on the Mount. Getting into some new stuff here. Uh, new, new sort of just posture even uh, from Jesus and his teaching. So with Matthew chapter 5, we'll read verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old... You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to court with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you. You will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Grass withers, flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. So like I said this morning, we really do get into an interesting section in the Sermon on the Mount. As Jim said last week, we have sort of the opening section of the Beatitudes, the distinction of the people of God, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, and what kind of characterizes kingdom people. The distinction then of God's people as salt and light in the world. And so as there's this, there's this section that we go into that Jim spoke on last week, which is Christ's relationship to the law, right? And he's you see it there, verses 17 through 20. It says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. Not a dot or an iota will pass away from the law. I've come to fulfill all of the law. And you can imagine, um, it's interesting, if um, you read through the Psalms, that, that opening psalm, it is, if you were a faithful Jew, you would memorize what your, what your hymnody, your psalter, was this book of Psalms. It's what you sang was the book of Psalms. And so Psalm 1 is this blessedness. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's the opening of Psalm 1. And so if you're a faithful Jew, a faithful religious person at this time, you know that blessedness comes from observing the law. From, from respecting the law, loving the law of God. And so they're hearing Jesus, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. And they might be thinking, what about 
What about the law? What about this, this, this rule of life that has been come down to us from God and from our teachers? What is our relationship? How do we then relate to God if, if you're going to not talk about the law? And almost like Jesus, you can see how the argument might be forming in their minds. He's like, oh, okay, let's go there then. If, you want, if we're going to talk about how we're going to relate to God according to the law, then let's go to it. If the blessed ones are those who have a heart posture of longing for God, what is then the role of the law? He says, I've not come to abolish the law. Not a dot, not an iota can pass away from it. In fact, you might say, as Scripture says, and I repeat quite often, that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God, including his law, will never pass away. Stands forever. And so it, with that reality... Jesus then launches into basically his commentary on, on the law of God. He says at the end of this pas the passage before this section that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's, it's, a, it's a startling, startling statement. There is something new here in the way that Jesus teaches on the impact of the law. Now, if you look through here, through the rest of chapter 5, there's six sections that we're going to look at, and they all start the same way. We've got the section on anger, section on lust, then marriage or divorce, then oaths, then retaliation, and then love for your enemies. There's these six sections, and um, they all start with, you've heard it said, and like our passage this morning says, you have heard it said of old, he isn't saying God's word says. He says, you've heard it said of old, though he is quoting the, the sixth commandment there of do not murder, but there's some extra stuff put on there. He says, you've heard it said of old, but I say to you. And then he goes to the next section. You've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. Again, you've heard it said, but I say. Over and over again, there's this repeated phrase. If you were reading through it for our Wednesday night group, group and we were making observations of the text, this is an observation we would make, right? He seems to be repeating this phrase. You've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. He doesn't say the law says, as though he's coming up with something new. But what he is doing is he is going against a lot of the traditional interpretation of the law. These repeated rules, the teachers, the Pharisees, they would sit down, those leaders of the synagogue, and they would sit down and they would expound the law, and it likely was in a language. Not everybody had a copy of God's Word like we do today. Their phone, they didn't have that app developed yet on their phone so that they could read what God's Word says. They're, 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 they're saying, they're, they're basically reading and interpreting the law all at the same time, giving it out to their people. And Jesus says, this is, this is what he's contradicting. You've heard it said of old, but he do, and he doesn't say, this is just in passing, he doesn't say, but let me tell you what I've heard. Like, this is uh, an interesting reality, the teaching of Jesus. You've heard it of old, but let me tell you what I heard of old. He says, you've heard it of old, but I say to you. Jesus comes on the scene with this authoritative teaching, not passed down from scribes and Pharisees, but as one who's rightly interpreting the law. And if you look at the end of chapter 7, we'll get there in a few months, that, that, that what they marvel at is that Jesus taught uniquely. He taught as someone with authority. 
He's not regurgitating someone else's interpretation. He's the lawgiver who's giving the correct interpretation. Jesus needs no authority outside of himself. He is the authority. He is the authority. And so remember, that's what we'll see here at the end. When we get to the end of chapter 7, remember this reality that Jesus is teaching with authority. You know, some things Jesus teaches on are hard to understand. Like, there's just sometimes you get into a parable, and thankfully most of them are given an interpretation, but you just hear, like, um, you know, there's all sorts of interpretations, like the, uh, the, uh, the virgins and their oil lamps, and, and the, the wedding feast, and go out to the hedges, and there's, this, there's just some things you read, and you've got to kind of do some work, like, to understand. Some things Jesus says are kind of hard, because they're hard to understand. Some things Jesus says are kind of hard, because they're so easy to understand, <laughs> and we don't like what it says. That's, one of, that's this passage this morning. Like at some, at some level, you can almost just read this, and you don't need me to do a bunch of like in-depth interpretation, like what in the world does this mean? It's just right there. It's just right there. This passage is hard, not because it's hard to understand. This passage is hard because it just cuts to the chase, and it calls us out. This is one of these easy-to-understand statements, but consequently a really hard statement. So before we get any further into it, I think we all have to f- answer this question. And it's, it's, um, we know the answer in our culture at large today, but can anyone correct you? Can anyone correct you? When we get into this whole section here of of Jesus giving us the proper interpretation of the law, can anyone correct you? Is there anyone in your life that's able to say, you're wrong in this area. You're making a mistake. This isn't good. Do you have any external voices? Or what is more popular today, and, and really just, I can't blame our modern culture, just it's our sinful nature, What's more popular is I'll listen to you so long as you affirm what I want to hear. (laughs) If you want to agree with me, then come on, let's talk. But if you want to push against me and challenge me in my thinking, mm, I'm not so into that. I don't want to be corrected. While we would like to sit around and talk about there are all these people out there that don't like to be corrected, the sad truth is that there is a natural inner lawyer in all of us taking up the case at every turn when we hear something that disagrees with the way that we want to live our lives, with the way that we think, with the way that we think things should happen, and something comes against it, and we immediately take up the defense. Well, no, this is the reason. No, these are the reasons. And so I just ask that question because Jesus is going to get into our business here. He really is. He's going to say some things that if you have your inner lawyer, no offense to people who are in the law profession, but if you, it's not a negative lawyer statement, but just the reality, if you have this inner lawyer is all geared up and ready to go, well fed and, and, and ready to fight, as soon as you hear it, you begin to say, well, but no, this, no, this, uh, no, I have all these reasonings. So can anyone, can anyone correct you? If we hear someone tell us that we should change or that we should apologize or that we should repent or that we should stop a behavior, our knee-jerk reaction is to launch into a defense of ourselves. That is not the posture of the Christian. It is not the posture of the Christian. 
There is an understanding of God and of ourselves that humbles the Christian to look honestly at their own lives, their own actions, and their own attitudes. There is a certainty that I have not yet been made perfect. There's a certainty that I have not arrived and will not short of glory. I have not arrived. And so there's a high probability I don't even recognize the things in my life that I need to change. That is why God has, it's one reason why God has his church. We exist for the equipping of all of God's people, for the empowering of all of Christ's people to worship him with all of their lives. And so in one reason the church exists is for that mutual edification and sanctification. Because not only is there a certainty that we need to change, there's a real probability you don't even see the things you need to change until you butt heads with somebody in your neighborhood or in your fellowship or in your house maybe even. It might be a spouse that you can never allow to correct you <laughs> that maybe knows you the best and says, here's something you need to work on. Are we correctable? But further than that, can Jesus correct you? Is there any area of your life where Jesus can say, no, not this. No, you cannot go this way anymore. No, this attitude is, is sinful. You cannot harbor this anger, this resentment. You cannot seek this retaliation. Is, can Jesus ever tell you no? That is what it means for him to be Lord and King. The Sermon on the Mount is how the king's people live like the king's people, and we live under his authority. So this passage, as I said, if, if you can't get over that, you've got a lot of work to do before the Sermon on the Mount really benefits you. But if you can get there, what does this passage tell us? It communicates its point pretty easily. There are three prohibited postures toward your brother and then three corresponding punishments, right? It's not just that we are commanded not to murder, right? That's kind of like the obvious one. You can imagine how Jesus is fighting against this idea of the Pharisees say, well, you just can't murder. Don't murder. If you murder, you'll be liable to the judgment. And so, Missio Church, so long as you don't shed the blood of another person in this fellowship, we're all good with each other because we haven't murdered each other, Right? Oh, the way to go. We should just go home. We fulfilled the sixth commandment, right? We haven't murdered one another. No. This, it's not just that we're commanded not to murder. Jesus says, whoever is angry with his brother is liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother, and there are various ways commentators talk about these Greek words here of insulting, raka, and, and like it's moros. It sounds like moron to me. But anyway, uh, insults their brother, liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. To say, to say you fool, and there's, a, there's an argument that maybe they're calling them they're an apostate. If you condemn someone to hell, your brother to hell, you're liable to go to hell yourself because of this anger, this resentment, this hatred that's pouring out to you from you towards your brother. There's this escalating punishment. Angry, liable to the judgment. Insulting, liable to the council. Call them a fool, liable to the hell of fire. Is that a mystery that Jesus is condemning anger towards your neighbor, anger towards your brother, not just murder, but anger. Jesus is saying that the spirit of the law runs deeper than the letter of the law. 
the king's people strive for forgiveness and reconciliation. We are not to be complacent with surface-level conformity. We're not to be complacent with surface-level conformity. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. So, for example, pretend I have a baseball at home signed by Babe Ruth. I don't. Sorry, I just watched The Sandlot recently. But I I have a baseball at home signed by Babe Ruth, and I have a rule for my kids, and it is don't touch my baseball. Right? Don't touch my baseball. Don't touch my baseball. And I leave, and I go out to work, and I say before I leave, don't touch my baseball, right? So what do the kids do? They get markers, and they write it. They, they, they put their own names. They're careful never to touch the baseball. They don't put their hands on it. They write their own names on it with markers. They go get the salad tongs, and they grab it, and they carry it out in the yard, and they invite their friends over, and they make sure they always have a glove on it. And they don't touch it. They, they hit it with a bat, you know, but they're not touching it. And then to, to put it back before dad gets home, they have a friend. They're not touching it. But maybe they'll have the friend grab the baseball and put it back inside before dad gets home. Have they obeyed the law? Thank you, Morgan. <laughs> There's an argument that they obeyed the letter of the law. They did not touch it. That's what I said. They did not break the letter of the law. But we all know they broke the spirit of the law. They absolutely broke what the whole purpose of the law really is. Jesus calls his people to something different, that to not murder is not just don't touch the baseball, but do everything else you want to, just don't touch it. To not murder is not just don't take someone else's life. It's like all the things that lead up to murder must be seen as a poison in your life. All the things leading up to it, you must work and fight against all the things leading up to murder even. They, they, that is the spirit of of the law that we're not asking the question how much can i get away with before i break the law how close can i get to hating you before i murder you that's okay because i haven't broken i haven't murdered you but boy i can get right up in there and hate you and curse you and say terrible things about you but as long as i don't murder you it's okay no it's all along the way the question isn't that we are asking is not how much can i get away with but instead How do I best please and honor my king? How do I best please and honor my king? You know, in one sense, this is the ultimate pro-life text. This is the ultimate pro-life text. You know, Christianity, from its inception, you can go to the earliest document, the Didache, written uh, the teaching, basically, which is is speaking out against taking the life of an infant. It's, It's a very anti-abortion doctrine. It's a very, Christianity for thousands of years of existence has always been uh, just passionately pro-life upon every stage. We say from the womb to the tomb, because it rhymes. But we say from conception until final breath, Christianity honors and respects and values and cherishes life. As an image bearer of God, you have intrinsic value and dignity and worth. Every single one no matter what, is worthy of life and has intrinsic value and meaning. From the moment of conception to the final breath that we take, we are called to love and serve our neighbors. But Christianity actually goes farther. This is the ultimate pro-life text because it's, you, you cannot be a Christian and, and, and see the sense of, per, you can be a Christian, or excuse me, you can, this, is the, this is so pro-life because 
you can be not a Christian and, and yet see the sense of protecting human life from womb to tomb. But the Christian is called by Jesus in this text that we are to be so pro-life, not only do we protect the physical life from womb to tomb, we don't even murder with our tongues. <laughs> this is an ultimate pro-life text. <laughs> not only do we not take life, we don't even murder with our tongues. We don't even murder with our tongues. You know, it's one of the saddest developments in our modern technological age. Outrage gets the most clicks. If you can, if you can say it as spicy as you can say it, everyone's got, that's what's going to get you the most attention. Honest, well-reasoned, passionate, but yet, um, you know, thoughtful, gracious arguments, they don't move the needle anymore. But anger does. And I'll just honestly, I've been saddened in the past year or two of many ministers that I've, I've appreciated over the years because of their the, theological knowledge. They've taken up tactics of anger. And I think, well, have you read the Sermon on the Mount? You cannot angrily be pro-life and be, can, be as just as murderous with your tongue. Be wary, church. Let me say something radical here. Finding someone who hates Biden and his supporters like you do is not a cause for celebration. It's a call for repentance. Finding someone who hates Biden and his supporters like you do is not a cause for celebration. It's a call to repentance. Likewise, finding someone who hates Trump and his supporters like you is not a cause for celebration either. It's a call for repentance. It's a call for repentance. Disagree with political stances all you want. Disagree with their Christianity even. But this does not make us and empower us with the ability to spew hatred, to speak murder with our tongues, those that we do not like. This does not make us doormats. I think it's hard to say that Jesus just allowed himself to be bullied around in his arguments. We still have, at the core of our identity, a commitment to truth. And there is such a thing as righteous anger, right? Jesus had righteous anger. There is such a thing. The Bible even speaks about in Ephesians, you know, be angry and do not sin. There is such a thing as righteous anger. But I'm just always suspicious of my own. I'm always suspicious of my own. Because I, it's far too easy to convince myself of my own rightness. I would rather... I had to think about this, but I would rather graciously and lovingly make my case and lose than aggressively and angrily make my case, win, and be wrong. Because according to Jesus, I've murdered with my tongue all along the way. So this is serious. It's urgent. We, this, at, the, the last, at the end of the text, there's these two illustrations, right? Jesus just gives a, the urgency of the moment is all he's getting at. That if you are worshiping God and it comes to your mind, I've wronged someone. They have aught against me. They're angry with me. And here I am worshiping God and I have no desire to be reconciled to my brother. Jesus says, leave your gift. Go and make it right. A practical application. If you're sitting here and this, oh, wait. I, I, this, I, I did wrong this person. According to this text, you'd be better off to get up out of church right now, go walk and find this person that you've wronged, apologize and make it right, repent and make restitution. 
then come worship Jesus. <laughs> then come sing his praises. But he, it, the, the emphasis is on the urgency. This must be done. Don't go a day further. Don't go a moment further in bringing your offering to God when you're living in total hypocrisy of hatred towards a brother, wronging a brother or a sister, one of your neighbors. All likewise with the judgment. He says when you're going to the court, make restitution, make amends, find some way to work things out before it gets too far. The details, I don't think, of the illustration matter as much as the general emphasis. Urgently and diligently work to be faithful to the keeping of the law to not murder. So positively, what does this mean? What are the characteristics of Christ, of the king's people? Firstly, we are people of forgiveness. Because the law is, the law is all negative. But Jesus is moving it here to, how do we make positive affirmations on these on the law of God. We are to be people of forgiveness. We'll look at this more in the section on retaliation, but we are to be people of forgiveness. Have you been wronged? Have you been hurt? Do you have a legitimate reason for anger at someone? Probably it's a broken world. <laughs> it's really messy out there. It, you're a sinner and so is everyone else. And so there's all sorts of reason for hurt. And we don't like try to like, say that doesn't exist or delegitimize the hurt, the sorrow, the struggle. Yes, let me validate all of those emotions, all of that hurt. But it doesn't remove us from the obligation to forgive. It does not remove us from the obligation to forgive. To cozy up to your anger may feel therapeutic for a season, but it's murder. It is comforting yourself with the assassination of someone else by being and fostering that anger towards them. You must forgive them. Pray right now even for God to search your heart for anger that you hold. It may be a quiet anger even towards someone in this room. Pray for God's illumination and conviction. And if he does it, pray for the person you're mad at. One of the, fun, one of the trickiest things to do, I'm not saying, I, I don't want to be self-incriminating, Let's say that maybe there's somebody who has people they're mad at and they drive by in a car and, it, and, it, and it, it roils up your anger. Pray for that person. They need Jesus. They need forgiveness. They're dealing with a lot. They might be on their way to hell. And my heart cannot be, God, vindicate me. It is, Jesus, save them. Forgive me for, for putting myself on some pedestal as though they owe me something. Pray for the one that you're mad at. Pray for God to have mercy on them. Pray for God to bless them. Pray for them to be saved if they don't know Jesus. And in all the complexities that brings, and I can't specifically address them all in one sermon, pray for the power to forgive and to forgive them. So we are to be people of forgiveness. We are to be people of reconciliation. One of the oddest things in churches that just go on for years and years is all the disunity and all of the history of fights and hatred and bickering at one another that just is allowed to be just okay with it this person is going along with this person yeah i know that they don't sit on the same side of the church that's just the way it is we just get to we just kind of go forward that's not a christian church <laughs> we are to be people of reconciliation while we are searching our hearts for anger and resentments that we hold what about those that are justifiably held against us? Because not only do you live in a sinful world, you are a sinner in a sinful world. Who are those that you have wronged? Who are those that you've insulted? Who are those that you have transgressed against? 
According to Jesus, you should leave this service right now, not sing one more song to Jesus before you go and make it right with whomever that person is. The king's people urgently seek to keep short accounts and to live reconciled lives with those around them. Now, none of you are getting up except for Jim right now, so we'll, we'll take care of the last song. <laughs> None of you are getting up, so maybe you all have never wronged anybody. But, you know, there is this urgency to this. There is this, there's this, this commitment to, I want to live as a forgiving and reconciled person. Urgently doing this. Why? Why do the king's people live this way? Because they know. Why do we live forgiving and reconciled? Because we know we are forgiven and reconciled people. The motor for all of this is not, remember, we started the whole Sermon on the Mount, is not, this is how you become one of the king's people. This is how the people who are the king's people, this is how they live. And so the realization is not, get these things right so that you can become the king's people. The emphasis, as he's speaking to his disciples, you are his. If you are here and believing in Christ, repenting from your sins, if you are forgiven, by the work of Christ on the cross for your sins, you are a forgiven one. You are reconciled to the God of the universe through, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so then as a forgiven and reconciled one, how else can you live except forgiving and seeking reconciliation in all of your relationships? Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is hard to refuse taking ownership for your wrongs and seeking reconciliation when God himself worked for your reconciliation when you were the one wholly at fault for the transgression. God, we are not sitting here as sinners because God messed up. <laughs> it is wholly on us. And yet God sought forgiveness, reconciliation, sent his son into the world to bring these things about, not because our deserving of it. We are forgiven. We are reconciled by his grace and mercy. How can a people... Forgiven and reconciled, not go out into the world seeking to live the same posture with the world, forgiving and seeking for reconciliation. These are the attitudes that are to mark the king's people. Forgiving, reconciling, peacemakers, repenters, and glad in God because they have been forgiven and they are reconciled. Let's pray. Father, I, I do ask that as, as tough as this section is, God, that it would never lose its tether to the gospel. That, Father, we want to rejoice that this morning there is the free offer of forgiveness and reconciliation through the work of Jesus Christ to everyone. As Peter, to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray this morning that as we have gathered, God, that you would secure us all as the king's people and then as the king's people, glad in not what we have done for you, but glad in what you have done for us. Father, fill us with your spirit that we might march out these doors 
as forgiving, forgiven people and reconciling, reconciled ones. God, make us more fully into the people that we are as your people. Help us, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.